0: So get ready, it's time to suit up, to show up, and to move the ball. Hey everyone, it's great to be back with you for another episode of Move the Ball. If this is your first time listening, welcome. And if you've been a part of the Move the Ball movement for a while, welcome back. I'm always glad that you are here with us. As you all know, on this podcast, we talk about business, branding, sports, and of course, how to move the ball. Two things before we get into today's episode first, and I say this on every show, if you have not already done so, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. We've had such incredible guests already on this season. We've got phenomenal guests coming up, got an incredible one on today. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss another episode. And second, you all know that I recently launched the Move the Ball merchandise store. Thank you to those who reached out asking about when I was going to get some new pieces in. I'm excited to share that we have new merch. In the store, there is a link in the show notes. Go check that out. Get yourself some swag and rock that you are a part of the move the ball movement because for us together, we really do move the ball. All right. For today's episode, I've got a wonderful guest, someone who definitely knows how to keep things moving and is always staying ready to make more stuff happen inside the huddle and ready to talk about his experience and share what he has done throughout his entire career to move that ball is Greg Bell. Hi, Greg. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Jen, how are you doing?
0: I'm good. I'm so glad to have you here with us. I know you've been traveling. You're always staying busy, always keeping things moving.
1: (laughs) That is life. It is always changing, ever changing, and it's moving.
0: Absolutely. So let me just share a little bit about your background for those listening. Greg is a retired NFL running back who was drafted in the first round as a 26th overall pick in the 1984 NFL draft by the Buffalo Bills. He played college football at Notre Dame. And during his NFL career, he played for the Bills, the Los Angeles Rams, and the L.A. Raiders. And currently, Greg is doing so many great things with his Athlete for Life Foundation that we will also talk about on the show. All right, Greg, are you ready to move the ball? Always. All right. So you've been around football and the business of football for a long time. You've played at the highest level. I believe there are so many things that competitive sports teach us to be successful, not only to be successful in the sport, but also to be elite in business and in life and anything that we set out to do. And you know, for me that I've been a student of the game since I was four years old, I wrote this book called Move the Ball, which really sparked the whole Move the Ball movement, sharing different principles that I've learned from the game. When you look at being a football player and what it has taught you to be successful, outside of the obvious things like teamwork, hard work, dedication, those things people always know about, what are some of the other things that you've taken away from the sport to be
1: successful? Uh, Never quit attitude. That's probably the number one thing uh, you'll find from me. You know, that, that old catch or that old phrase is, uh, you know, many ways to skin a cat. You know, you know <laughs> there, there are uh, thousands of ways to get a deal done. You know, I've learned through, you know, my time, not only as, you know, with my uh, foundation, but also with my, my corporation, Bell Management Services. You have to be creative in everything you do. And that's kind of what sports is. I mean, look at Sean Mavet, He was the new hot kid three, four years ago, because he brought in something new, something, you know, something that revolutionized the game of football today. And it'll catch up, you know, they'll, the defenses will catch up to him at some point, and then they'll have to change and, and, and come at it a different way. And I think that's what sports has done for me. It's allowed me to keep that competitive edge that I've always wanted to be competitive in anything I do, whether it was sports, whether it was business, whether it was, you know, walking up a mountain. I make it competitive. And for me, that's really what the game of football has done for me in life. It keeps me energetic. It keeps me getting up every morning with something to go out and accomplish, whether it's my six-mile walk or it's, you know, losing 50 pounds or, you know, whatever the case may be, that competitive edge has always been there for me.
0: Well, I like that you mentioned the never-give-up attitude. People ask me all the time, Jen, how did you get into football, especially since I didn't grow up in a football family? And it was watching the game and seeing that kind of attitude, seeing I grew up in Chicago and seeing the Chicago Bears come back from these fourth quarter deficits of, you know, a couple touchdowns or three or four. And that didn't always happen. But seeing that it did happen, this is not unique to the Chicago Bears or to football, right? We see it in sports all the time where teams come back and win a game, but it's it's continuing to play the game and never giving up. And you know, hopefully the outcome will happen the way you want it. Now in sports, you have A set time frame for a game, but in life, you keep playing and you keep finding creative ways to get to the yes, to get to where you're going. And if you never give up, you will reach the outcomes that you're looking for. It might not be as quick as you want it; oftentimes, will not be right. But it's about just having that persistence and continuing to find creative ways, doing things differently, to get the objectives that you
1: want. In in life, just as in sports, there there always, you know, yeah, you said that there's a time, you know, in in sports you get a timeline. But a deadline is a timeline as well in business. So, you know, the thing it it teaches you from from structuring, how you have to structure your plan of attack, things of that nature. Sports is what does that for me. and, and, And that's what's made Athletes for Life so successful over the 32 years now that we've had this foundation in Southern California. Part of what we do with Athletes for Life, we have after school education programs. We have mentoring camps during the summer. And then we just launched a new program with Lowe's and some of the aerospace it's our ROP programs, which are recreational occupational programs that, so that these kids, because kids are different now, let's, let's remember that with technology, with looking at what a college degree can really do for you after you get right out of college, if you don't go on to get a master's or a doctorate or something of that nature, we're trying to train kids to be able to go out and produce economic wealth immediately. I mean, we're, we're doing programs where, they can lay floors and, and make $95,000 right out of high school. Th- that's real money in California where they can actually sustain a, a lifestyle here in California, because this is probably one of, next to New York, it's probably one of the most expensive states in the world. And so a kid who gets out of high school and goes, works at Starbucks, and he makes say $35,000, $40,000, he can't live in California. Our kids are trying to get out and be have a sustainable life and a presence in California. So with these ROP programs, we're able to teach these kids how to become techs for Ford, GM, Dodge. And their starting salary is 75000 These are things that kids need to hear and know that, you know, there's so many non traditional ways. I, I remember, think it was Michael Bloomberg or Michael Dell, I think it was, about seven or 10 years ago. He was hiring kids, giving them like 250000 to come work for Dell. Right, and, 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 you know, he's a UCLA guy. <laughs> and he was taking people right out of UCLA. I, I don't want him to finish school. I just want them to come work for me now. And it kind of upset the apple cart. But, you know, not every kid is going to be Greg Bell and, and spend four years at University of Notre Dame. Some of them want to go right out into the world and, and make their presence right now. And so we do so much with through Athletes for Life. It's just those are the things that you just got to ever change. We, you know, we start out as an anti-drunk driving drug prevention program for Governor Cuomo and Nancy Reagan. Now we're doing educational teaching and, and mentoring. It, it, it's ever-changing, and that's part of what we, how we've moved the ball with Athletes for Life.
0: Yeah, and that's part of life and business is you're a- always adapting, adjusting, yes. evolving. You should be doing that. I mean, even when you look at companies like IBM, right back in the day, IBM was successful. Then they, didn't re- they did not evolve, and so they suffered for a while. Now they've redeveloped themselves, gotten a new identity, focused on other things that are more relevant in today's age. And so every business needs to be thinking about, how am I evolving and adapting to meet the needs of the people I'm serving today?
1: And then you got companies like one of my partners, we were sitting there talking because we were just talking about a delivery of, of services. And we went by a closed Sears and Robux building. Sears was what Amazon is today. Yes. They were set up to be the number one delivery service in the world. But whether it was ignorance, arrogance, whatever you want to call, they didn't change. And in our game, we don't call it a change. We call it an audible. They didn't make the audible, and now they're no longer around.
0: Very good point. Yeah, so I mean, I think to those listening, you always got to think about how are you adapting? And It's not just business owners. As individuals, as people trying to grow our careers and be successful, we also need to be adapting and evolving and figuring out how we should pivot to continue to improve, to continue to advance, and reach that next level. So I want to run things way back. You're from Columbus, Ohio area. You chose to go to Notre Dame. Why did you pick Notre Dame?
1: Because uh, they fired Coach Woody Hayes. That's the the easiest answer I can give you. I I can tell you now, knowing what I know in life, I made the right choice. It was the right place for me. That was somewhere God led me to to choose. It was a divine presence that hit me on the National Signing Day. You know, it's kind of funny. I tell people the story. Sometimes it's kind of hard to believe, but I, I had a city championship basketball game. So me, Bobby Harris, who was the number one player in Ohio in basketball that year, Paul O'Neill, who I'm sure you know, played for the Cincinnati Reds and New York Yankees. The two or three of us were playing against each other. Me and Bob were on the city championship South High School team. And Paul was on Brookhaven. I won. I hit the the game-winning shot. Coach Bowden, Van Devine, and Bo Schimbecker were all sitting in the stands because I had made the announcement that I would make make my national uh, announcement. And instead of going home, because I told my father I was going to make that announcement, he went and told the press. I didn't want him to tell, so I went over a girlfriend of mine's place who was just a good friend of mine, and I never knew, all the years I knew her, I never knew she was Catholic, but I fell asleep on their couch, and I woke up about 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, and I knew the press was waiting because I told them I'd make the announcement at 8 o'clock in the morning, and so everybody was camped out waiting to see what I was going to do. I woke up, and I had a crucifix sit right in front of me, and it was a crucifix that I had never seen before because Baptist churches and Catholic churches, we had two different crucifixes. And uh, I woke up and I kind of looked at Mr. Bear and and he came down the store. He said, son, you know, you've been all on the news. You know, I said, yeah, I know. That's why I didn't want to go home. He said, well, it's time to make that announcement. He says, you have an ideal? And I kind of looked at him and I said, are you Catholic? And he says, yes, sir, we are. I I didn't know. I was a young inner city kid. I didn't know blacks were Catholics because all of us were Southern Baptists. My dad was a Southern Baptist minister. So it was like, (laughs) how do you? how do you wake up that way? And, and I knew something was divine in the pick and I went to Notre Dame and, and it was actually a blessing because my dad, after I chose the University of Notre Dame, he told me that was his dream place that he always wanted to go. And his high school ran their wing team, wing T offense when he was back in Alabama. So it's just, you know, it was, like I said, it was a divine presence. It makes me warm every time I think about it because sometimes it takes a blessing to, to, so that you make the right choices. And that was a blessing for me.
0: Oh, I love the story. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's interesting when we look back on our careers and our lives, how different moments kind of take us in certain directions that end up being great moves for wherever it is we go in life. So I think it's a fantastic story.
1: For me, it was it, it was a blessing because I, I'm I'm a people person in in, in all aspect, and you know, I, I told myself when I went and when I got done playing pro football, I never wanted to work, and. Uh, not, not necessarily, not didn't want to work, but I didn't want to work for anyone. I wanted to work for myself. That was the reason I went to Notre Dame, went into business, got my business degree and and went on and got my my master's in sports administration. So it was one of those things where I just didn't want to do some certain things. And the blessing for me is that part of going to the University of Notre Dame was the network that that it provided me with. And a lot of those people had never been close at that time with what I would tell you with an African-American young man and they they opened their arms because I've just you know I'm not, I'm that kind of person that warms up to people and they warm up to me and you know I, I hate to say I'm trusting that you can trust me but you know I, I got a trusting sense about it and uh, to this day they call me their son I'm welcome in Chicago very well because that's where most of us you know most of the Notre Dame alums are in Chicago.
0: Right and we've known each other for for a while. And I I remember back our first conversation, I mean, I could tell that positive vibe from you, you know, you just get like, you know, who's good people and who's trustworthy and and who's got good energy. And you're definitely one of those people. So as I mentioned, when I read your bio that uh, you were drafted in the first round of the 84 draft, walk us through, what was that experience like? I mean, today you see the draft is a big production, right? It's televised. There's lots of glitz and glamour and focus on what are players wearing to the draft and all kinds of different. What was that experience like for you?
1: The experience was similar. For, for a college player who, who's getting ready to be drafted, the experience is going to be the same. I don't care if you're on national television or you're sitting at home with your significant other or you're with your family. For us, it was one of those situations where I, I had selected an agent in Akron, Ohio who represented me, Ben Bennett. Steve DiBiase, Martin Bayless. I'm trying to think. It was one other person we were, but Ben Bennett was the number one quarterback in the country coming out of Duke. He had passed for a st- stupid amount of yards. Steve DiBiase, one of the top linebackers in the country. My junior, senior year was terrible. I blew my ankle out. I did a 360 in the foot, stayed in the ground. So I wasn't projected in most people's list to be a number one draft pick. But my agent at that time, he swore. He's like, Greg, you know, when you came into college, it was you, there was Herschel, there was Kerwin Bell, and there was Mike Rozier. And Mike had already gone to the USFL with Herschel, and he just said, Greg, I don't care about your ankle. You are as good as those other two coming out of high school. You're going to be a first-round draft pick. So I was like, eh. I said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to select you as my agent. I said, but if I'm not drafted in the first round, he says, you don't have to use me. And he felt that comfortable about it when I was coming out of college. And so I just said, you know, I didn't want to go back and play another year for Jerry Fouts. He had kind of taken the luster out of Notre Dame at that time for me. And so I decided to get ready for the combine. And it was just, it's kind of different. The combines now are publicized. Ours wasn't. It was the Bledsoe combine and Seattle had their own private combine and the Jets had their own private and the Cowboys. Everybody had their own private combines back in 1984. And so I ran track at Notre Dame at the same time. So I was a four-year letterman and a four-year track letterman as well. And I ran at the Melrose Track Meet the night before the Seattle Combine. And the funny thing is that I had probably one of my greatest sprinting opportunities ever where I, I ran a world record time and finished second to Stanley Floyd, right? And I got on a plane. I couldn't even come back and run in the finals because I was going to Seattle to go to the combine, but it was on national television. And all of a sudden people like, you know, the NFL scouts were like, did we see Greg Bell run a second? to Stanley Floyd break the world record in the 60 meter dash last day? It was like, yeah. And then I, I come, I go there and it, it just, I had a great combine. I think I ran like a, a 432 in the 40, a vertical 43 inches. I just had a really outstanding combine to the fact that I didn't go to anybody else's combines after that because so many teams were there. They all go to each other's combine. So when Dallas called me, they like, we don't care if you come, we saw you in Seattle. And so I didn't have to do any more combines. That was it. And so the nationals at the draft day, I was just sitting around snacking while everybody was waiting for Ben Bennett to be drafted in the first round. Ben had a Drinking problem at the time and I think that's probably what killed him with the NFL. He never played a in the National Football League, but he started drinking. It was the most hilarious draft party at our agent's house. We were all sitting there and we were just watching Ben implode and all of a sudden uh, about at number 14 because most people don't know bills had the 14th pick number 14 came in and the phone rings and Bill said look. Uh, we're thinking about making you our number one draft pick. And I'm like, oh, geez, at number 14, I'm really happy about this. And everybody got kind of crazy. But the funny thing about the entire draft that everyone should know is this is what I tell people. This is what I trust what he has to say. Mel Kuyper was the only guy on national television who predicted Greg Bell was going to be a number one draft pick. How funny was that? I didn't even know I was going to be a number one draft pick. (laughs) Mel Kuyper came out and basically said to the world, I got a sleeper pick that nobody had, don't, nobody even knows who it is. And Boomer did that. Ooh, 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 ooh. He did all that kind of stuff. He's like, where did you come up with this name? And he says, Greg Bell, he hasn't played in two years. Boomer was just going off on Mel. Mel's like, look, I've been around the scouts. The buzz is out on this kid. He is guaranteed. He's like, I guarantee he's the sleeper of the entire draft. And Mel Carter was right.
0: Oh, I love that story.
1: And it was his first year as a prognosticator. Nice. That's so. when I see Mel, we always joke about it. You know, we, I'll see him and he'd be like, that's my first pick right there. People didn't believe me until that happened. So it's, 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 different. No cameras. You got to hear us on the telephone. They always do the telephone conference, but that was the, that was the whole thing. I watched Ben Ben explode. Me and Steve Diassi got drafted that day. Uh, Martin Bayless got drafted uh, the next day. And, and so did uh can think of who that other person was that was there with us, but it was another, you know, we were just all in Akron, Ohio, just taking it easy, but it was, it was a, it was probably the greatest day of my life from a standpoint of waiting for something. The only thing I could tell you that was more important than that was, you know, the birth of my kids, you know, and so, and that, and that's about the only thing that can fuel your excitement because you don't know what's going to come unless you, of course, you decide to find out beforehand.
0: Sure. Let's transition to your rookie season with the Bills. You were a pro bowler that year. You ended up rushing 1,100 yards, seven touchdowns. In the NFL, everyone's good. The speed of the game is faster than college. What were you doing to really ensure that you would perform well during your rookie season?
1: Nothing. I, I was just doing what a running back's supposed to do. We had a terrible passing offense, so they basically said, we're going to be a running football team. And, uh, Jim Ringo decided to put a lot of faith in me. He was the offensive line coordinator and and run game coordinator, Hall of Fame, Green Bay Packer. But Jim just basically told the the team, we're just going to put the ball in Greg's hand. You know, they went from, you know, my first six games, I think I hit two, probably 100 yards. They were only giving me the ball like nine or 10 times a game. To Jim said, well, timeout. We can't complete a pass. We're just going to give it to Greg. You know, he's ready to run. I think he knows what he's, his job is now. And in, in literally in about 13 games, I ran for, you know, the 1,000 yards. I just got on the string and kept a couple 200-yard games. You know, once I believed in myself and I understood the speed of the game, for any rookie, that's the number one thing you have to do. You have to study and be prepared for the speed of the game. And everybody talks about Division One and Alabama, Notre Dame. The game is faster. It's faster than what you think it is. These guys, I tell people they're, they're the, the best 22 guys in that, on that game. They're the pros and they really mean it means a lot to be called a pro because what, what you're going to see is the best that you can see and the game is fast. And for a rookie running back that comes in the league, it's always about adjusting to the, the, the past in and, and the blitz. Uh, that's where they're going to kind of get you. If you can run, you can make your runs. And that was pretty much what I was capable of doing. I had the speed. I was faster than the most of the guys on the field, other than a guy like Daryl Green or Ron Brown. Defensively, I don't, I put my speed up to anybody on the defense, but I, I do know that Daryl can run. <laughs> and he's a lot smaller than I was. But yeah, it, it, the game is just fast. And once you studied the game and you know what your assignments are, it slows the game down for you. And then just your natural ability takes over. And I think that's really what, what took over for me.
0: And you were with the Bills for the first few years of your career. In 87, you ended up going over to the Rams. Culturally, how is that different?
1: For me, it was more of a blessing. You know, you get off of really a terrible rug that was in Buffalo. They had a terrible turf. I actually got forced into a split and had an abdomen tear, about two-inch tear in my abdomen. And back then, they really didn't know what they were doing. Back now, they have surgery. They'll do surgery on you and repair it. Back then, they just give you some anti-inflammatories and tell you to rest. And so it never really healed properly until I got to Dr. Kerlin. He kind of got, got to the root of the problem. I tell people all the time, I understand why they call it USC tell back U, because John Robinson was a great running coach. I mean, that was what he did. He knew how to run the ball. Eric had had a lot of success in the RAM system. I had a lot of success. You know, we probably averaged the same yards per carry. Eric carried the ball a lot. I, I, I'll be honest, I don't think I ever in my eight years in the National Football League carried the ball over 300, 300 times. I think Eric carried the ball like 340, 380, you know, 329. That'll get you 20, what is it, 2103 or 2107. You get the ball a lot. But, the, you know, it's 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 where it, John Robbins is just a great running coach.
0: And you ended up being the two-time rushing touchdowns leader while you were with the Rams in 88 and 89. I mean, what were you doing? As we talked about I mean, it's tough to be a professional athlete. You're playing with the best of the best. And so how were you evolving and continuing to ensure that you were performing at such an elite level as you continued on?
1: Well, I mean, I tell people all the time, that probably the one thing people tend to forget about football, especially National Football League, is this your job? It was my job. And my job was to score touchdowns and to run yards. If I didn't do anything else, those were my two jobs that I had to accomplish. And and John was pretty straightforward in and basically making sure I knew that. He's like, if you need a breather, come on out. I'll put somebody else in on the receiving, you know, let somebody else catch balls. But for me it was just about making sure that uh I stayed healthy. And if I was healthy, you're gonna get the production from me. And 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 I like the fact that, you know, the Thing I hated in Buffalo's. I would, you know, rack up the yards and i get down inside the 10 yard line and then they'd give it to the fullback to try and get it in. And I'd be like, you know, I remember they used to do that to Walter a lot too. And it'd be like, the only time you get a chance to score is like, if you break off a 30, 40 yard run, you better score because if you get it inside, you know, they're not going to give it to you. Well, John Robinson was different. He said, you work it, you're the workhorse, and you're going to get the glory as well. So, you know, it, it was one of those great situations where as much as John didn't like my style of running. He grew to understand and appreciate it.
0: And you mentioned that the NFL, it's your job, right? Being a football player, that is your job, and you want to make sure that you're being a professional and succeeding at that position. Over the years, the game of football has changed in the NFL. The business of the NFL has also changed, and you see players that the average, as you know, the average NFL career is getting shorter and shorter. It's hard to get to the NFL, but they say it's harder to stay in the NFL. And so as you look at the young men who have recently been drafted and are transitioning into the league, what would you say to them? What things should they be focusing on to be better football players as professionals and to help ensure their success?
1: Well, I think health is going to be the number one thing. Your body is your temple. So you know, these guys have a, a great opportunity to play longer, to be honest. I don't know if the career is getting shorter. I think the career is getting shorter because the money is getting so large and owners just don't want to pay guys. <laughs> Not that their careers are getting shorter. Todd Gurley, I think, is still playing the league right now, but his salary is at a point where, for him, you know, he can walk away from the game and he's already made $100 million in six years. <laughs> and I bless his heart, you know, bless the lot I, I mean. I love it when I pick up the paper and I read where one of these linemen or linebackers or running back, they played seven years, they made a hundred and something million dollars, and then they announced their retirement. Oh, you know, I remember when I came in, the old guys basically told me, you stay here until they kick you out of the place. And it's different now. And And I'm happy I was able to stay alive long enough to see that come because, you know, we didn't make nearly the money that these kids make today. And they've devalued the running back position so much. I'm I'm happy when I see a kid like a Todd Gurley walk away from the game. He could still play right now. I think Todd could go and be productive for somebody, but why deal with it? He's got his health, he's got his mental health, and that's the number one thing. He doesn't have to take the chance of possibly getting hit to a concussion that might later lead to chronic CTE or whatever. I'm happy that they're able to, their career is getting shorter because the money is getting higher so they can walk away and be. The kind of person they need to be afterwards.
0: Sure, yeah. I mean, as you know, football is very taxing on the body, and so you certainly don't want to risk an injury that could have long-term effects and affect you, you know, once your playing career is is over and done with.
1: Yeah, and I don't want people to hear me wrong. I love the game of football. God bless me with the ability to play it better than ninety-nine point ninety-nine percent of the men who walk on this earth who had the dream. Uh, I was able to actually live my dream for, you know, close to nine years and walk away. And to the best, say I'm in the best of health. Of course, I've had back surgery. You know, I've got some chronic issues with, you know, you know, you have those things that are going to come, right? But I'm still here. Thank God. You know, I think about the people who mean so much to me who aren't here today. You know, Dave Dorson, one of those guys, you know, I'm, I'm happy. I'm still here.
0: We're glad you're here with us sharing your awesome expertise and knowledge too. And I want to come back to the Athletes for Life Foundation because there's some great stuff that you're doing there. You mentioned earlier in the show, the camps that you guys do. And I, I know something we've talked about before the show is having multi-day camps to really make an impact on kids versus just having one day camp. Show with us some of the camps that are coming up that you're involved with and, and uh, what do you focus on?
1: Well, one of our camp individuals who basically came and decided he wanted to carry forth the torch, I guess you can call it. We've always had a four-day, three-day, uh, three-night camp at Cal State San Bernardino. That's we call it the Life Skill Camp. And uh, Alexander Madison, one of the, the young men who came up through the program, I think, I, I think it was either fifth or sixth grade. I, I hate when, because my brain won't go back as far as I think it should, but he's been with us for a long time—six, seven years—part of the program. Him and his brother, and that community. The camp has been there for now over 18 years. Uh, last year, we had a, a reduced camp because of COVID, and this year we're back to normal. But it's now called the I Am Gifted camp that Athletes for Life is hosting. It's our same format where we're talking about life skills. Yes. These young men and women, uh, this year is just men, but uh, they come in, uh, they get the understanding what it feels like to be a college freshman and go to two-a-day practice while you still have to go to class, how to juggle Late night seminars, things of that nature. How to get up, eat properly on your own. We feed them properly, but it's teaching them the right way to eat. Go to class, go to work on the field. Come back, get lunch, go back on the field, go back to class, and in the evenings go to the a lecture period. So it's it's one of those kind of camps where they're learning life skills. We've gone from having coding, math, English. This year we've got financial literacy that's being provided by Chase Financial Literacy Department. We have a clinical psychologist who's going to come and talk about mental wellness. Uh, we've got the police chief that's going to deal with social justice and 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 diversity and how to be a better recipient and, and you know how to be better to the badge and the badge be better to you. It's a two way street. As well as we'll we'll talk with them about the NC two A changes, with the NIL and NC two A changes and SAT testing and things of that nature. So. We've got a pretty elaborate program, which takes more than one day. You know, when you get a kid and he comes out there for two and a half hours, all you're going to do is football. And then you're going to say hi, kicks and giggles, give him a lunch, and then he leaves. And you never see his face again. The difference in our camp is these kids come back every year. Alex was a five-year, six-year participant. Kenny was a six-year, Kenny Clark uh, for the Packers, a six-year participant. Nate Metters, I think Nate's with Cleveland Browns right now. They keep coming back because they're getting something out of it. It's fueling that little dream in their mind to keep coming back and learn more. And for 18 years, it was hosted by retired players. Now we've got present day players who are coming back because Alex is the face of the camp now. We still run it. He gets, and he, and the nice thing about Alex, he came to me and said, Mr. Bell, these are the things I want to, I want to focus on. It wasn't okay, Mr. Bell, how are we going to do this? You know, it wasn't let me guide him through. He just he he took the bull by the horn and said, I want to focus on mental well and mental health. I want to deal with financial literacy, especially in the inner city. And I want to deal with, you know, how do we work together as a unit with our police force? Because they've always been sponsors and they've always helped our kids. But here in San Bernardino, we have some of the highest crime rates in the world. And number one is the state of California. So let's face it. Between California and some of these other students, we're three times the size of most. It's probably number one in the world. He grew up in that community. He's one of those kids that you can look and say, community can do well. If you want to do well, you can do well. And that's what Alex and and Kenny and Nate and those guys are, are projecting from San Bernardino.
0: Well, I think the camps that you put on are absolutely fantastic. And the impact that you're making is extraordinary. So hats off to everything.
1: I thank you. And we got, you know, it's it's great because not only do I have his camp, he's doing a camp in Minneapolis, Boise, where he went to college at San Bernardino, but also have Max Crosby's camp coming up in in July as well. So we're doing that for Max and uh, uh, he seems to be a really good young man. And he's, you know, he's a Raider. As Al Davis said, he's a Raider.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned Kenny Clark. I mean, shout out to Kenny. Kenny's great. He was on the show before, as you know, just uh, a few weeks ago. So I highly encourage people to check out his episode. He's got some great wisdom that he shares as well, and a lot of it, I'm sure, he's learned
1: going through your program. Let me tell you the one thing I I will take onus in. The one thing I ask all of them to do is finish what you start. And and I can remember telling a young man almost thirty years ago. So not thirty, probably about twenty something years ago when Jerome Bettis was deciding to leave and go leave college early, same as with Rocket Rahiba uh, Ismail, all I told each one of those guys is you made a promise. So finish what you start. And Kenny graduated, Nate graduated, Alexanders graduated and Jerome went back after 25 years, got his degree from the university of Notre Dame. So these guys yes. know that's the one message I tell all of them. And, you know, guys like Aaron Emmanuel and guys at USC, I used to say that to them all the time and, If you ever talk to a guy like Aaron Emanuel, he'll say, you know what, G-Bell told me, man, don't, if that's the only thing this college owes you is your degree. They got everything out of you already, but make sure you get that from them. So hands off to all those guys. I appreciate them. And it
0: was neat to see Jerome finish. And I think that's important too, because everyone's got their path and things happen in life. Obviously he had a football career, but to see him come back and get that degree, I, I think it's awesome. And so for people that might not have finished their degree and have been thinking about it. You're never too late to do it. So just go back and finish it.
1: For a guy like Jerome, I remember when I asked Jerome, I said, you're finally doing it? And he said, I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it because I want to make sure my kids see what I preach to them. Don't ever start something that you can't complete.
0: I like it. Now, one other thing that you're involved in, well, we talked about at the beginning of the show, you're always staying busy, always on the move. You've been doing some international travel as well. You were in Brazil. Recently, I know you're going to Uganda soon. Tell us about what are some of the international ventures that you've been involved in?
1: Well, it's another extension of AFL, but another extension of football. I mean, I was contacted by Uganda two years ago about doing a uh, camp program over there, an education program, because the the first lady, she's in charge of education and sports. So they've already created an American Football League over there. They're actually coming out and will be at our camp just observing. And then, um, just by meeting with them, I met with the administrator to the president, who's his best friend, basically. And uh, he said, "Can we do some other business?" So I've got a couple of hedge funds and venture capital companies that are looking to do something with the raw materials, minerals, oils, battery—you know, uh, nickel things of that nature—as well as you know, they, they're supposed to have some of the best coffee in the world. So we're—you know—I'm taking a business corp over there in July. Uh, to sit down with the president, I actually got a letter, an official letter from the president of Uganda inviting me over to meet to meet with him. No one else but him and his first lady. So our group is excited. Uh, we've been doing a few zooms to get ourselves prepared. But uh, Terrence Howard is headed out, I think, on the 26th with the Netflix group to look at doing some filming over in Uganda, and then I'm going over there sometime around that time as well, kind of overlap. But uh, that's what we've been doing, and you know, Brazil's the same way, you know. My son actually signed a contract with the Brazil team before COVID-19 hit. And uh, the guy, while I was in Brazil, we we got a chance to talk. And I'm actually putting a letter together right now to send to the National Football League, trying to see if there's any equipment, things of that nature that we can provide to those countries, because that's their number one need. It's one thing, we know they have physical bodies to play, because let's look at their, their Brazilian soccer team. You know, to them as Brazilian football, they're one of the greatest teams in the world. So we know they have athletes. The question is, can we get them to love our sport as much as they love their sport? And that's something we've been able to do in countries like Germany and Amsterdam over in, in Holland and other countries like Japan and China. They love American football now probably more than they love soccer. I don't know if that's ever going to happen in South America, but we're going to try and educate them and let them have a passion to watch. And, and I'm going to just tell you, when I was, in, I was there for about 10 days and, you know, they watched American basketball like religiously. You go into a restaurant and, and there's an eight foot giant screen with every single NBA game going, 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 going. So, you know, you stay up till almost one o'clock in the morning watching American basketball. So they love American sports all over the world. And hopefully we, you know, I'm just an ambassador of that, of that game because I love that game. It did so much for me.
0: I love it. I love it. I look forward to seeing the continual updates to what you're doing overseas and also here with AFL and all the other projects that you're involved in. So, Greg, what I want to do now is I want to run you through my two-minute drill, ask you some fun questions. Are you ready?
1: Okay. I'm ready.
0: All right. First question is, when you were 10 years old, what did you want to be when you grew up?
1: A professional athlete.
0: What three words would you use to describe yourself?
1: I'm going to use Alexander's word. I was gifted.
0: Okay. What is one thing that most people don't know about you?
1: I love art. I really enjoy art, uh, and that's kind of why I do so much. That's why I was in Brazil at one of the uh, openings of a Amadeus uh, Black History Museum in uh, Belo Horizonte. Uh, I love art. I really do.
0: And something we didn't talk about on the show, but during the Super Bowl weekend, uh, you had a party art in the bowl and uh, had some great art pieces, some great NFL legends out there to to celebrate art and, and great company and community. Yes. Next question is if you had one intro song played at all of your public appearances, what would that one song be?
1: Well, a lot of people won't love it, but uh the greatest, you know, and I I'm not gonna tell you who was made by, but uh they, they can say what they say about him, but that was a I love that song the greatest.
0: What book are you currently reading or what podcast are you currently listening to?
1: The podcast I would tell you I'm listening to right now, because it gets funnier funny, it'd probably be Dion's. You know, when DI comes, I get a great laugh after DI because just you can't help but laugh with some of the stuff he says it does. If it was a book, you know, I'm I'm actually not doing a book. I'm trying to learn Portuguese and Spanish. So I'm trying to, yeah, I'm trying to learn a couple of languages. You know, when you travel, you got to be able to communicate. So trust me, if you don't get a second language in, try and learn Spanish. That's the one you got to start to learn.
0: For sure. All right. Next question is you're hosting a dinner party and you can invite three famous people living or deceased? Who would you choose and why?
1: Probably the most obvious one would probably be Martin Luther King, because I'd like to understand his uh, his patience. He had more patience than I think most people will ever have from that standpoint. He was a friend of mine. I, I call him a friend. I would love to have Muhammad Ali back, you know, around at the same time. And uh, if the third person, I'd probably say somebody would be a woman. And I won't say Rosa Parks, because a lot of people say that I've met Rosa Parks and this thing. As an African-American man living in the United States and seeing what goes around the world, you want to you want kind of learn patience. I'm sorry I can't give you that, that name, but uh, there was a young lady who actually sat on the bus before Rosa Parks did and couldn't get up, and she was just exhausted. And I would love to know what went through her mind at that moment.
0: Yes, that would be an interesting perspective to have, absolutely. All right, my last question is, do you sing in the shower?
1: No, I don't. I, I, I learned a long time ago, I was, my dad was a gifted singer. He still sings and still sounds like Sam Cooke. That wasn't my gift. I tell people all the time, you have to know your gift. God gives us all a gift. And I think the most special thing you could do in your life, more so than making a million dollars, a trillion dollars, a billion dollars, is learn that gift that God gave you.
0: I completely agree with that. Well said. So, Greg, as we look to end our show, let people know where can they follow you on social media and also let them know where can they learn more about Athletes for Life?
1: www.athletesforlife.org is the uh, website. Of course, hashtag Athletes for Life Foundation is on uh, the Instagram. And I think it's probably on Twitter too, but I'm not a Twitter guy. I'm not a TikTok guy either. But uh, those are the two that I spend most time posting Uh, You can find out everything you want to find out about Athletes for Life. And of course, you can always Google Greg Beck.
0: Perfect. Well, thanks so much, Greg, for being on the show today. love your energy, love your insights, and really enjoyed talking with you.
1: All right. Take care.
0: And thanks to everyone for listening. Once again, if you have not yet, hit that subscribe button. Do so today so that you never miss a future episode. And also share the show with a friend or two or three. It's one way that you can help me to move the ball. Again, go look in the show notes, check out Greg's foundation link, check out more about AFL, learn more about what he's doing and how you might be able to help. And also go look at the Move the Ball merchandise store, check out the new swag and get yourself some merchandise. All right, everyone, we'll talk with you next time. Until then, make sure that you suit up, you show up and you move the ball. Thank you for listening to Move the Ball.